This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is David Suchar. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its third season. In our first two seasons, my good friend Buzz Tarlow produced 25 episodes on a variety of timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, I expect to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. So we have a very interesting topic and two great guests today. The topic is building information modeling, BIM. Increasingly for construction processes across the United States and elsewhere, electronic modeling software is becoming the standard in terms of tracking design and construction. And as that has become the standard, there are also increasing problems, increasing legal problems that go along with its use, including who is responsible for certain elements of design, what are the capabilities of the modeling software, and who should be responsible for certain aspects. As we have these legal implications for BIM, we have two guests on our program who are working hard to prevent them. So that is planning for the contracts, planning for and anticipating the problems that lie ahead, and seeking to alleviate them. So without further ado, let me introduce you to our guests. Christine Cubes needs no introduction, but she deserves one. So Christine is the owner of the Cubes Law Office here in my hometown of Minneapolis, Minnesota. She is, of course, the former chair of the ABA Forum on Construction Law, a former governing committee member, chair of the design division, and of course, has had many other roles at ABA. She is a practicing lawyer as well, negotiates and drafts, and discusses with clients contracts and also deals with claims on the back end. So litigates them, mediates them, and works on what happens after construction projects are completed. So Christine, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, David. Great to be here. We also have Jimmy Germano, who is the Senior Manager and Counsel for Contract Documents at AIA. So Jimmy works with me on the steering committee for Division 7, Insurance, Surety, and Liens at the ABA Forum on Construction Law. And he also, in practice, gets to see a wide range of contract issues and has recently been part of the process of developing the BIM contract documents for AIA. And he was a practicing lawyer before he worked at AIA. So Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Happy to be here. Jimmy was also a prior guest on the podcast. So welcome back. I'm shocked I got invited back on. Well, you know, I, I thought that I thought that your performance merited a curtain call. So welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. As we begin this discussion, I thought maybe to start with you, Christine, can you tell us what legal issues are implicated by use of BIM? Well, that's a big question. I'll paint with a broad brush. 
the legal implications relate to, they start with the meeting of the minds, with the contract. Have the parties understood one another as far as what they're looking for in BIM, what they're agreeing to provide. So that's the biggest portion of the legal implications. And then that plays out in performance and it relates to, you know, is there a breach of the contract? Is there a breach of the standard of care? Is there negligence? How the BIM is utilized and whether or not there are issues with standard of care as the designers work within BIM. And then also there can be legal implications between design and contractor, whether it's being built according to BIM. So there's just, I'd say, just basically contractual and negligence issues on both sides. Thank you. And Jimmy, how has AIA recently sought to address those issues in the form of the contract documents? Sure. Yeah. So in 2022, we released a new suite of BIM exhibits. So they they replaced the old exhibits, which were released in 2013. So usually the AIA contract documents are released on a 10-year cycle. These were ready and ready to go. So we released them on a nine-year cycle. And 2013 actually replaced the 2008, I think, versions of the BIM exhibits. So updated just five years after the first ones. Um, so we released a whole new suite of exhibits addressing these types of issues that are raised with building information modeling in 2022. Back to you, Christine. How do the varying interests of the participants on a construction project, owners, designers, design builders, how do those impact the issues that we see with the use of BIM on construction projects? So the fascinating thing about BIM is that it can mean something different to each of the parties and each of the strata within the parties, right? So we've got the owner side who may be interested in having a model for operation and maintenance of their facility. They may have an interest in a BIM model to be able to simply demonstrate the beauty of the building or the functionality of their building on a, here's our model in performance. You've got the design professionals who obviously are designing. You've got the contractors who very well are contributing to it, but also there are opportunities, for instance, for energy modeling, for quantity takeoffs, for estimating, for lighting layout, for landscape design, all these different facets that can be an interest and a, a purpose to having the BIM. So back to the contract issues is that the thousands of details that need to be discussed and decided really drive the need for communication and for these parties to air out from the beginning, like as early as possible, to discuss what are we looking for here? What is the owner looking for? What are the design teams requiring? What are they needing? And so that at the end of the day, when we're in the project or through the project, that BIM has provided what the parties and interest needed or wanted or agreed to. The worst thing is when you get to the end of the project and then the owner says, well, I want the full detailed all levels of development BIM model copy for myself. If that's the first time it's discussed, it's going to be, you know, a Herculean lift to try to get that done. It's going to be a huge expense and it's it's just going to be a big problem because it's going to be a total disconnect about what's this BIM anyway. That's when people are like, wait a minute, you said you're going to give me a BIM. So, right. yeah. So, Jimmy, as Christine discusses the ideal meeting of the minds, over the use of BIM as between different participants 
on a construction project. Can you tell us how the latest iteration of the AIA documents addresses some of those issues? Yeah, sure. So there's three different, I'll say, tiers of documents that were released in 2022. The first tier, you have just your exhibits. That's everything that starts with the letter E. And then you have the second and third tier, which is everything that starts with the letter G. And for the attorneys, and I'm assuming mostly attorneys listening to this, they really want to focus on the E, the exhibits, that first tier of documents. And in that space, we have four exhibits. So I'll just kind of contain my comments to that first tier. We'll talk about the exhibits, and then we'll get into the DIM execution plan perhaps a little bit later. But for those exhibits, the first question you want to answer and ask your client answer is, who is going to get access to the model? How widely do we want to share the various models on the project? So let's say you represent a, um, a structural engineer and uh, you're negotiating this. Is that model just going to be shared with the other design consultants on the project? Let's assume it's design, bid, build. And it never in any way is it going to make its way over to the construction side. That's a very different negotiation that needs to take place versus a completely federated model where everybody has access to everybody else's model on the project. Those are two very different conversations that have to take place. So what we did with our exhibits is we made exhibits for each of those scenarios. So that's sort of step one is figure out which scenario you're in, and then you have to pick the right exhibit to match that framework. And Christine, have you seen the use of these exhibits in practice and the benefits of them in how they're used? Well, these brand new exhibits, we're just beginning to use them because it just came out in 2022. But the whole concept of the BIM documents from AIA, I always feel is a, a great asset for the parties and the lawyers because it gives us that opportunity for conversation. It's a ready-made checklist of topics we need to discuss. And when you're in BIM, again, my overall message about working with projects and developing projects for BIM is communication, communication, communication. The AIA documents help with that because they have this document that has, you know, the 25, the 50, the 100 questions, whatever, that the parties need to discuss. And I can't say enough about how important it is to have a sit down, to have the lawyers understand what they're talking about, to have the parties understand what they're talking about. And that's a, a fluency issue that I often, when I teach on this topic or advise on this topic, is that not every party that is part of the conversation in a contract negotiation for a project using BIM is fluent in the language of BIM. And they may not fully understand, the lawyers may not really fully understand levels of development. What does that mean? What are the implications? They may not fully understand these different forms and how they work together. The parties certainly may not yet, especially if they're new adapters to this type of technology. Maybe they want to get into it. They really want to be strong and brave and, and you know really leading the pack and they want to get into BIM. That's great, but there's going to be a learning curve for everyone. So just having that the asset of the AIA documents helps to bring the parties together and go through the conversations that need to be had. So you can vet those questions and not leave a bunch of unanswered issues and unanswered questions behind. I know an issue. Go ahead, Jimmy. Yes. Real quick, I wanted to follow up on that because I think that's really critical. And in releasing some of our educational material around the release of these documents, we interviewed a lot of experts who talked about the importance of communication. 
And one thing that a couple of them identify, which I hadn't really thought about it this way until they discussed it this way, was there needs to be two different conversations have to happen. There's the normal conversation that every attorney is going to think about, which is between you and opposing counsel, that conversation between how are we sharing this model? How are we negotiating it, et cetera? But there's also a conversation that should the best practices happen before that, which is the attorney with the building information modeling team within their client's firm to say, all right, what is our, before I even go to the other side, what's our capability? What can we do? What can't we do? What do we do really well? Where can we improve? Explain this to me so that when I go into battle with the other side and start negotiating terms, I'm doing that with a certain level of competence about not only the industry and the terms, but also what this specific company can do. So it helps to sort of bridge the gap in both ways. So attorneys can get smart and then use that smartness, if that's a word, to negotiate with each other. And indeed, I would follow on that saying that that's the opportunity for both the design professional and the lawyer, or if it's the contractor that's got the the BIM team, uh, and the lawyer to really be translators, if you would, about the process and the requirements of the process, as well as navigators through the process. Sometimes we're used to just, you know, negotiating the words on the paper in a contract, but this has so much more impact, so much more meaning when we're talking about all of the different parties who are going to be participating and then relying on the BIM. So we really have a a unique opportunity, I think, as lawyers and as design professionals as well, to be facilitating that process by being the translator if necessary. So we need to know what we're talking about first and then help our clients understand and help the other party understand and move it forward. All of that makes great sense. I know that one issue that comes up with some frequency in this context is whether the model itself should become a contract document. Can either one of you or both of you address that issue? Let me address it from the background and then we can pitch it over to Jimmy with regard to the AA documents. But yes, it is an issue because we have to acknowledge our history in designing and and construction is that we have a plan that the design professionals have created and they keep their rights to the plan. Yes, under the Architectural Works Copyright Protection Act, but usually the owner would get a copy, their own working copy. So they're used to having, here's our set of the plans, here it is. And they have that rolled up and they put it in their files and they've got that, they, they feel secure with that. Well, what do you do with the BIM? Who owns the BIM? Is it a contract document? And if it is, then the parties need to understand the meaning of that because that set of plans has we're historically used to uh, using it. That defines the structure that we're building, whatever it might be, right? Those plans are it. That tells us what it needs to do. And importantly, the contractor can point to those plans and say, hey, I built it as planned. I'm good. And the designer's going to point at the plan and say, hey, my plan meets the standard of care, meets all the codes. I'm good. So now we have the parties going to be pointing at that BIM. And that is really important to know, is it going to be a contract document or not? And if it is, which iteration, because it is this ongoing, evolving process that's very valuable. That process is very valuable. But when does it become the contract document? And now the AIA is working, I think, really smartly in helping us see the difference between iterations and an actual BIM model that we can use as a contract document. And I'll let Jimmy speak to that. 
Sure. Yeah, that's a great lead in. Thank you, Christine. The AI documents are developed. You know, when this document gets released in 2022, it, we didn't start writing it in 2022. This document was being discussed and started to be edited in 2017, 2018, 2019. And then it takes years. And one of the early things that the documents committee discussed was whether or not to permit and the language that we use is this, to permit a model or a model version to be enumerated as a contract document. Because in the AI frameworks, the contract documents are, quote, enumerated in the A101 and the A201. Let's just assume it's designed bid bill for now because it's a little cleaner that way. And the decision was made early to say that this is probably where the industry is going. And let's assume that we're going to allow this. What guardrails do we put up in these documents to allow that to happen? And then you get really interesting discussions. So what we did was we created essentially the same exhibit twice. It's the E201 and the E202. They are almost identical. But the difference is the E201, it's in the title, it allows you to enumerate a model version as a contract document and the E202 does not. That's the only difference between the two of those. But what we wanted to do was instead of just making it a little check mark inside Article 3 that, that most people would kind of glance over, when you pick this document up off the shelf, you know exactly what you're signing up for because it's in the title. So you can't mistakenly decide that your model is going to be a contract document or not. It's in the title as part of the negotiations from the very front end. And Dave, if you'll permit me to maybe go on a little bit of a tangent. Sure. Um, a couple issues came up, and it's something that as lawyers, we tend to think about things a little bit differently, right? So a contractor might say, well, why don't we make the model a contract document? We're going to build off of it anyway, right? Let's just give it to us. It's helpful to us, et cetera. Most of the time when you hear this debate, should or should not a model be a contract document? Most of the time, what you'll see is design firms and design professionals are a little bit hesitant because there's more risk there, right? They're actually going to be building from that. There's a lot of data in there that can be extracted, et cetera. And most of the time, contractors on the other side, they want it to be a contract document because it's it's more practical, there's more information, they can use it a little bit better, it's up to date, et cetera. Well, anyone who's familiar with the A201 has probably read the following two clauses a hundred times and never thought about how they would be different or impacted if the model version becomes a contract document. The first is... I think it's in Article 3, and it says, it's very short, and it just says, I'm going to butcher this quote a little bit, but it's pretty close. And it says something like, the contractor shall perform the work in accordance with the contract documents. And that's a very simple statement, but it's incredibly powerful. So if a contractor wants the model to be a contract document, if it is a contract document, there's no permissive language in that clause. It's not the contractor may perform the work in accordance with the contract documents. They shall, they have to. Right. Um, so that's one. And the other example is the changes clause. So I think it's article seven. If you look at the changes clause, it says every time you modify a contract document, you need a change order. Well, if a model is a contract document, that model is changed and updated thousands right. of times. All the time. Day. Yep. And you can't practically issue a change order every time you know, a junior designer or a junior level manager at a construction company makes an alteration to the model. It's just not practical. You would need literally a thousand change orders a day. So what we did was we said, all right, a static model has to be the contract document, like Christine said. So we invented and defined the phrase model version. 
It's a specific frozen in time version of that model. That's the one you build from. And then you might go back and you have one offline that you're working on, you're updating it and you're updating the fixtures and the wall color and all that kind of beautiful stuff. And then you issue that one and that becomes the updated model version. And maybe you need one change order to do that, but you didn't need 15,000 change orders in the meantime, every time you changed out a door handle you know, on a 40-story high-rise. So it's those little kind of granular tweaks that make this issue interesting and really complicated. And there's kind of no easy answer for it. Thanks for that explanation, Jimmy. We'll be right back with more of the podcast. PMA Consultants is a leading provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. Our experts have a wealth of experience in identifying, analyzing, preparing, and presenting claims and disputes on construction and engineering projects. PMA is proud to be a longtime supporter of the ABA Construction Law Forum and its members. Connect with our construction claims experts on our website, pmaconsultants.com. Welcome back to the podcast. So when we broke, we had Jimmy talking about the AIA's contract provision efforts at solving some of the problems. I know you, Christine, you wanted to address your impressions of the process and what AIA had done. Yeah, well, I just wanted to say, you know, as a person outside the organization, Jimmy's doing a great job of describing what they do. But I just wanted to say, you know, this is not like a paid advertisement or anything from me, but I'm just saying as a a person who utilizes the AIA documents on a regular basis, I have a license I have for, you know, 14 years at least for all the contract documents. I just really appreciate who AIA is in the profession and in the industry, because as Jimmy was talking about, the documents do not happen overnight. And in fact, they don't even happen over a series of a few overnights. They happen over a period of years, right? I mean, your documents come out oftentimes every 10 years. And I think they probably barely come off the press and you already started to assemble your thinking groups, their working groups to start evaluating and what needs to happen next. So I just want to say thank you because it is really valuable to have the AIA's forethought that bring together of all the industry partners who put their input in that you're that listening place that allows that feedback and then tries to develop a document that is really serving the good of the whole, generally speaking. Are there things that can be tweaked from various different parties' interests? Of course, but it's a great, great resource. So I just wanted to say thank you to AIA. I concur, Jimmy, and thank you for your great work. Well, thank you, uh, Christine and Dave. I promise to everyone out there, I did not pay either of them. (laughs) Um, And Christine, you're right. I can tell you, as a matter of fact, I was just looking and we have something that we call the icebox. And that is like where we put comments in the decade that a document is live, if we get a comment about something. And the comment file that we have on the A201 2017 already has over 100 comments in it. So we already have a hundred things that we are going to look at for that document in two or three years once we start getting into that. But yeah, you're exactly right. So I appreciate you um, noticing and appreciating the process. Aside from generally the great work that AIA is doing, I thought to 
ask both of you about an issue that I know comes up with some frequency as well, which is in the BIM model itself, which party owns the model or claims some type of design credit for the model? How does that issue arise and what are some ways that can be sorted out? Great question. Historically, the point about who owns the documents is a discussion point between design professional and owner. And it is by the standard provisions of the AIA contract suites, as well as the federal law, the ownership of all of the rights to the instruments of service, which would be what we call, that's the, you know, the technical term for the plans and all of the design work that rests with the design professional. So whether it's the architect, the engineer, et cetera. So that's the background that we come from. And as I said earlier, we always have to think about where we're coming from, what has formed our mindset and our expectations as we're moving ahead. So we've got the parties to these transactions are thinking along the lines of a set of plans and you keep the rights to it, but I get a copy. Well, now come into BIM, whether we're like fully into it or we're just starting into it. Now we have at the table owners representatives who may well be contributing to design concept. We have contractors who very well may be, especially specialty subcontractors, they may be uh, contributing from their design perspective right to the design, the HVAC, the mechanical, et cetera. So now, yes, the design professional wants to say that it's their right to own the BIM, but there are others who have contributed to it. So that collaboration, which is really good, makes it a little messy about who owns it. And similarly, I'll throw this out there, we can talk more about it later, but similarly, it raises the issue of liability, right? And you might want to flag that for a later conversation, which we can do today. But the ownership usually runs with, okay, I designed it, I own it, and I'm responsible for it. Well, if we're all contributing to it, how are we going to share that liability? So that's a thing. And I want to say one more thing about ownership for the design professional. Design professionals have an ethical obligation to be signing the documents over which they are in responsible charge and direct supervision. And so there's a whole nother layer for the design professionals to be concerned about working in BIM when they are basically starting the process, but others are contributing to it. Are those other contributors under the direct supervision and responsible charge of that architect or engineer? So it raises a lot of issues that need to be sussed out, parsed out, and discussed, again, through the communication angle I was talking about, just for parties to discuss who's going to be contributing, how they're going to be contributing, and make sure that you discuss from an early stage whose rights are going to be whose. And Jimmy, I know that the AIA documents deal with that issue in some way, and there's also a newer AIA BIM execution plan, correct, that deals with some of the issues of how to actually enact the BIM program on a project. Can you discuss that? Sure. Yeah. So um, I guess uh, I'll take the first question first, and that is ownership. And the standard ownership pattern and practice that Christine described in terms of the view of the AIA contract documents, BIM exhibits stays the same. So whoever is the the term that we use is the model author. So whoever generates the instrument of service, even if it's just one little singular model element in a much larger combined, or to use the term of art that I learned recently, the federated model, uh, they own that little model element. 
and then going back and kind of tearing it apart and sussing that all out becomes really difficult, but I don't have to do that. But that's just the position, at least. In terms of the BIM execution plan, that is the G203, uh, 2022, but so I'll refer to it as G203. That is in, I referred to the tiers at the beginning of this recording, this kind of in tier two of the granularity of these documents. So you've already negotiated your E, your exhibits, your BIM exhibit. Then you get into the BIM execution plan. And the AIA's BIM execution plan, it's not long. It's six pages. It's mostly empty fill points. But what it's designed to do is trigger a conversation around all of those issues. And those issues are things like data security. How are we going to secure the information we have? What's our nomenclature? How are we going to save models if we're sharing them? And I know, I mean, every lawyer listening to this has probably gotten into a situation where you're looking on your law firm's shared drive for like a template of an old motion to dismiss or something, and you can't find it because somebody saved it under some weird naming convention that only they understand. Well, let's avoid that problem. Let's talk about how we're going to save these models, how we're going to identify them. What are our levels of development? What's the modeling protocols? You know, are we going to upload our models on Friday or Monday? Just kind of that level of granularity. So that's not something the lawyers necessarily have to be involved in. But going back to the communication that Christine identified earlier, this is something where once the BIM exhibit, the e-document is negotiated and attached to the agreement. If you then look at your BIM execution plan and your BIM, we refer to them as BIMers, but like the people actually doing the designing, they're going to get in there and they're going to negotiate the terms of this BIM execution plan. Once they do that, have they agreed to something that you didn't anticipate when you negotiated the BIM exhibit? And they might have expanded your scope of work tremendously by negotiating something in the BIM execution plan that you now have to adhere to. So there's a mechanism in the exhibit to say, if there's protocols that are developed later on and they're going to change your scope of work or the contract sum or the contract time or anything like that, you have a right to request an adjustment for that. So it it kind of the exhibit and the BIM execution plan talk back and forth with one another to make sure that everything is you know, appropriate and fairly allocated and balanced. And as we talk about the capabilities and activities of the BIMers, right, the people who actually know how to use uh, the software, I thought to back up for a moment and ask, maybe let me start with you, Christine, do you have recommendations for lawyers in terms of understanding the deliverables on a project related to BIM or speaking BIM language for those of us who don't use BIM in our everyday lives? Yes. And my recommendation is to go find yourself a knowledgeable design professional who is a BIMmer, who does work in this environment, and either buy him a cup of coffee or bring him <laughs> in to work along, to, like to give you the remedial lesson on your project. Because the better that you are fluent in understanding the language, not that you need to know the granularity of the BIM model itself, but that you have the capacity to ask the questions that need to be asked, right? That's the thing. It's going through the issues that are highlighted in the forms and as well as sussing out the needs of the client, whoever your client might be, the expectations of use for the BIM, the understanding between the parties about who's doing what, the different players that are part of the project and what they are each going to be doing, 
that is where the the lawyer brings the value and can really help you know navigate translate and help move the project forward and so i'd say to the extent that you're not familiar get yourself familiar we just did a cle yesterday through the ABA Forum on Construction Law about BIM and its legal implications. I shouldn't have said yesterday. I should have said we just recently did a CLE on BIM and its legal implications, and that's available for people to download from the ABA web store to start getting yourself up to speed, but go take someone to coffee and, and start trying to understand just to, to have your own working knowledge of the aspects of it would be most helpful. And Jimmy, how do the AIA documents deal with the fact that most lawyers won't be fluent in operating BIM? Yeah, good question. So the answer to that is, on the one hand, incredibly simple, and on the other hand, incredibly complicated. The simple answer is, we made the exhibits as short as they possibly could be, and we wrote them in the most generic and plain language that we could, understanding that most of the time attorneys negotiating the exhibits or, you know, owners or risk managers, they're not going to understand the nuance of software requirements and file exchange protocols for building information models. That's that's going to go right over their heads most of the time. So the way that we accounted for that was we made the exhibits as short as we possibly could. They're still five or six pages, and and you're going to need to get in there and understand that a little bit. But you can't have just a one-pager that says everything you needed to say, because it's not going to say anything. But again, it can't also be 40 pages, because you're going to lose the audience on the second page. They're just going to give up. So we tried to strike that balance and to make the E, the exhibit, as short and sweet as possible and as simple as possible with the understanding that the BIMers will take care of the BIM execution plan and the the model element table, more importantly, down the road. And the lawyers can kind of have the conversation with them and communicate with them in that ongoing process. Yeah, go ahead. I, I think it's worth mentioning, Jimmy, too, that the BIM execution plan sounds kind of like a schedule or a you know protocol, but it's not actually a construction document, is it? No, so it's, it's, an ex- not, it's an exhibit too, but it's not actually itself. It's not like a schedule, like a project schedule that is a contract document. It's not a contract document, is it? So not all of the time is a schedule a contract document. Sometimes it can be, sometimes it's not. And we actually liken the BIM execution plan to schedules that are not contract documents. So the BIM execution plan is not a contract document. The way that the hook exists is in the exhibit, which is attached to an agreement. The exhibit says that the parties will develop and adhere to their BIM execution plan. So that's the hook language that says, yeah, your BIM execution plan and your model element table, they are not capital C, capital D contract documents, but you have to adhere to them like a building code, for example, or like a schedule that's not otherwise a contract document. It's a third sort of a third document that you are contractually obligated to adhere to, but it itself is not a contract. Yeah, I thought it was important to just make that distinction. Thanks. Totally. Yeah, good one. With the few minutes we have left, maybe let me ask both of you a question, which is about claims. I'm used to seeing BIM issues come up in the claims process. And I'll ask both of you, what issues arise most frequently associated with BIM on claims? And how can lawyers work to prevent those issues on the front end? I'll start. 
I think the BIM claims oftentimes arise out of what I call mismatched expectations of items that people have not discussed and clarified in the contract document. We don't have meeting of the minds on expectations for use of the BIM, for level of development of the BIM, for how much the BIM is going to cost. There haven't been the conversations that that I have mentioned and that Jimmy's mentioned that need to happen prior. Sometimes not because of anyone's fault, but just because people are eager and they kind of jump into it before they really think it through and, and go through this process. So that's oftentimes an issue. Another issue that can arise and does arise are things related to, for instance, who's controlling the model and is everyone working off the most recent, the latest update of the model? I had a case many years ago, I'd say probably 15 to 18 years ago, regarding them, litigated a case that dealt with the lack of coordination of the design in the BIM. And the designs had been uploaded, some structural and mechanical designs had been uploaded, but they had not, for whatever reason, been synchronized. I mean, granted, we're talking 15, 18 years ago, the BIM operated differently then. It was all loaded to an FTP site and somehow it didn't synchronize. And so someone pulled off old drawings and they worked off those. And then there was a clash between mechanical and structural in a, in a water park building. So this type of issues can come up. Also, another claim that can arise is what happens if there is a power generation problem and there's a loss of power to the facility, whatever it is, holding the bill? What if people can't access the bill? What happens then? Is there scheduling issues? Are there design issues, clash issues? And whose responsibility is that going to be? And obviously, that's something that can be insured for, but that's another area that can lead to claims. Jimmy, any advice on how parties can contract around claims that may eventually arise in this context? Sure. Contracting around them, just like Christine said, the full understanding of use and reliance and having that conversation up front. One of the sort of more popular examples of BIM arising in, in a litigation context that I had heard of is it's a case from like 20, it's like 2011 or 2012, where it was a, I think it was a university system that hired on a design bid build project, hired an architect to do the design and then contractor to build it, obviously. And the architect did the design and had MEP subs and structural consultants that came in and did their work in the model and the contractor started constructing the project. Well, in this particular project, there was a relatively small like interstitial space between two of the floors and a lot of stuff that needed to go uh, in that space. So a lot of MEP uh, and structural components that needed to fit into that space. And there is not a clash issue. But what the issue was, was that the way it was designed, it had to be installed in a very specific sequence. And that sequence doesn't matter if you're doing it electronically, you can kind of fit things wherever in any order, because it's all just computer programs and data and ones and zeros. But in real life, if you put this pipe up before that pipe goes up, well, that pipe doesn't fit anymore. So the argument was that the design team essentially assumed the liability of means and methods via designing it this way, and that it had to be installed in this certain sequence, and it wasn't communicated to the construction team that way. That was the argument. So that's something that I'm sure the design team never even thought of when they were putting this model together, but it was a legitimate issue that came up. So 
that's one of the examples that I'm aware of in kind of the way that you can see there are an exponential amount of issues that can arise when you're talking about models and how they're used and interpreted in ways that you may not have intended, particularly when you're used to just using 2D drawings. Well, uh, Christine and Jimmy, any final thoughts about best practices for use of BIM as lawyers on construction projects? Yeah, thank you. My closing comments would be not to be afraid, but to stoke yourself up with as much education and information as you can and be the best and most patient translator and navigator that you can for your client and for the process. I think that really is important. The communication aspect cannot be under stressed here. It's so, so very important. I would mostly echo that. I would say have the communications internally and understand, number one, just kind of BIM generally, but then also the BIM capabilities of your client, whether you're in-house counsel or outside counsel or whatever the case may be. It's sort of like when you have an insurance exhibit, a good construction attorney is going to know a decent amount about insurance, but they're not going to be able to go through the whole insurance exhibit and fill it out and negotiate that. You send that off to an insurance professional, but you have that conversation with them to say, all right, we need an appropriate amount of CGL and professional liability and auto and whatever the case may be, but you don't know the granularity of how that's underwritten and how it's priced and how it affects your bonding capacity if you're talking surety bonds, whatever that's kind of the level that a good construction attorney should get to when you're talking about BIM. You can forward the BIM exhibit and the BIM execution plan to your client and to their BIMers. And I'm really glad that term stuck today. So thank you. <laughs> and have them return the information that they have to you and explain all of that to you so that you become conversant in that. So you can then just better represent your client and protect their interests. Well, Christine and Jimmy, you are both fantastic guests. Thank you so much for appearing on Construction Law today. Been an honor. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, that was really fun. Thank you. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about construction law today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, David Suchar, at david.suchar at maslin.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening, and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.